Welcome to Karate in the Garage. I'm Corey Culp. I'm Freddie Wolf. It is Listener Choice Month. That means it's April. Did you know that? April. Hey, April Fools. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fools. <laughs> Hope everybody loved our Rise of Skywalker episode. I did. I had fun with it. Anyway, so about two months ago, was two almost two months ago, wasn't it? We put up uh, in February? a post. Yeah, yeah. A post on Patreon asking the Patreon listeners, hey, why don't you uh, pick a movie for us? Because we are going to pick four movies from your choices and do those for April. And here it is. It's April. Already. We, already. And a first up is a one that is mostly well known for having an amazing soundtrack. Like a lot of movies from the 90s had really amazing soundtracks. Some may say the soundtracks are more famous than the movies themselves. Correct. I've, I've talked to lots of people that haven't seen some of the biggest movie soundtrack movies of the 90s. I've never seen the movies, but love the albums. Sure. And this one, man, like you were, you and I were talking about before we had a mic, there are more songs in this movie not on the soundtrack than are on the soundtrack as far as like song count. I mean, there's probably like, what, 30 that aren't in the movie, something oh, like that close to forty. Yeah, maybe? man. It, it. Oh God, I think here. Let me. I've got a count right here. Uh, <laughs> there are fifty-two songs in Empire Records. So, do the math. Uh, there's twelve on the soundtrack. So there's another forty, I think, that uh, are not on the soundtrack. There's sixteen if you have the Australian or German imports, but there's fifteen. It closes out with uh, with Coyote Shivers, Sugar High. Which is not the same version that you see in the movie. It's different. And the movie version, of course, has Renee Zellweger singing over it. If you've seen the movie, if you haven't, well, you're in for a treat because the soundtrack fucking kills. The soundtrack is really good. Man, the soundtrack is like a time machine right to 1995. I mean, you know, you got every, you get the gin blossoms till I hear it from you, which massive it was all over. They played it hourly on K Rock. It, yep. it feels like the way I remember it. Yeah. But you get suicidal tendencies. You get the flying lizards, which I know is an eight is an is an 80s song, but still, Maxwell Caulfield pops on there and has his little you know funny bit. But you get the dirt clouds. The cranberries, the buggles show up, which is always good. You know, yep. that takes you right back to the beginning of MTV. But like the ass ponies, quicksand, these bands were like all over K-Rock. And it, especially I worked in the rock and roll business at the time. So I saw almost all of these bands live at various gigs around town back in the mid 90s. You know, yeah, Golden Voice, way to go. Yeah. But the biggest song on this soundtrack, what, what do you think that, what is it? Is it the, uh, is it the uh, Jim Blossom song or is it the Edwin Collins song? Cause I feel like that Edwin Collins song was huge and came out months before this movie was released. Yeah. I think the Jim Blossom song got, got played more play. I think. Yeah. A girl like you has a very, I don't know, like you said, because it came out so far ahead of the movie has it is carved out as more of a, I don't associate him as much with the movie, so maybe that's what I'm kind of leaning on here. Jim um, Blossoms? Yeah. Yeah, oh, that way, song should... kind of stands alone. <laughs> I know you're looking at the your your phone or your or your laptop, whatever you're going, oh, they're talking about Empire Records, but we say it. We are talking about Empire Records, directed by Alan Moyle. Uh, this one was picked by Shannon Sprout. Should point that yes, out. Yes, Shannon, thank you. See, this is what this is what we're talking about. The music is such an electric part of the movie beyond watching it. You know, I've listened to the soundtrack far more times than I've seen the movie. Oh, yeah, me too, man. I'm way more familiar with the soundtrack than I hadn't seen the movie 
since probably 1995. There's a time when, like we were talking about with, with, with in the mid 90s, mid to late 90s, where they had their soundtracks. Boy, if you wanted to discover new bands, that was the way to go because there's always, absolutely, like, dude, there was always like three quarters, if not more, of the songs on a soundtrack from the 90s for a movie like this of bands you've never heard of. Right. Some were just created for the soundtrack. What's crazy is like, right? Like in the nineties, bands chased soundtracks. Like everybody was trying to get their singles is how you broke. They were trying to get on a soundtrack for a film. Now, man, it's like everybody's chasing, you know, you get your movie done and then now you're chasing a song for your soundtrack. And it's like, so it's so funny because, you know, 25 years ago, Dude, you would have died to be on a movie like Empire Records. Right. Now, these days, you know, if you want to, let's tell, how much will you pay me? You know, it's so weird <laughs> because like you watch something now and it's like, you know, you know, every, you know, you know how every, how much everybody's paid for that needle drop. Oh yeah. Right. I think they got to get it up front too. If you, but you look at that, of the 15 songs that we talked about that are on the, the domestic release, I mean, I know the band because you know, I, I had an advanced copy of the soundtrack before, way before the movie came out. Yeah, this is one of those few times where more than half the songs are bands that I was already aware of or had already had, already broke through. Again, we living in the K-Rock market, you always heard bands before, especially yeah. the stuff that got stuck on 90s soundtracks. You heard these things way before most of the world heard them. But, I mean, the fact that, so Jim Blossom's Cranberries, Edwin Collins. Diswala. Toe the Wet Sprocket, you know, Toe the Wet Sprocket already, like, they already broke out. Yeah. Santa Barbara band. Better than Ezra. Cracker. Evan Dando. Luster. There's there there's seven, seven of the 15 songs right there are bands that I, that were already getting radio play be, long before the soundtrack came out. It's like, but it doesn't matter though. As you were saying to me, the, out of all the movies that we've ever covered and held, the movies from the 90s that we eventually cover or not cover, or even just talk about on the fly nothing says 1995 more than this movie does no it, and it goes across the board not just the music but it's the style of movie it's like you you were saying you mentioned it being possibly being a sundance darling at one point and and, and it feels like that and i think that has something to do with the writer Kara Heikinen, who also wrote The Thing Called Love. So she's got a very indie style writing sensibility. And music centric. Very much so. What's interesting though, you and I were poking around, but she had an interesting deal. It's not unusual to get, you know, to get a certain money up front and then against a larger portion once the movie commences production. But what's funny was she also got 1% of soundtrack royalties which is really fucking weird. But when you consider what we're talking about here, how big soundtracks were in the nineties. Yeah. That's kind of a coup on a contract, man. It's, it's kind sure. Of, you know, the movie didn't find an audience until it hit home video. This movie did so poorly in the theater. I mean, they got pulled after the first weekend. When you talk about a movie not opening, this movie did not open. <laughs> what did we say it was 150 K something like that? Yeah. Something like that. I mean, I believe so. Even if you open them to 1,500 seats, that's a surprisingly low number. But the soundtrack you mentioned hit, what, 63 on the Billboard Top 100? Yeah, and I think it went platinum. Which you think probably happened way after the movie had... I think the movie probably would have had a resurgence if it was still sitting in the theater. Because the soundtrack got moving probably after the movie was already pulled. Yeah, this movie screams 95 like through and through. Oh, by the way, we should point out something today about, what, about what's going on today. Today is 
fucking Rex Manning Day. <laughs> it's Rex Manning Day. It's April 8th today. I forgot to point that out early on because we were so excited to get to the music. Because, dude, like we talked about before, man, this the soundtrack is fucking great. Now, you can get what most, I think there's a, there, we found a Spotify playlist that has most of those 52 songs on it, right? Yeah. Just so you know, I sent you a list um, that has all 52 songs on it that you can, and it's, it's linked to Amazon. It shows you which ones, but some oh, of them you yeah. can't, some of them you can't, you know, like can't stop loving my, losing myself by the dirt clods, not available anywhere, but it does list all of the songs. Yeah. Yeah. That, so that I, I always forget about what song, by the way, he's. He, the the list that and I'll put this in the show notes also. Um, the thing that lit, that Freddie sent me is from a, a website called whatsong.com. It's what yep. hyphen what song.com. And it, it'll always show you where songs are streaming. Um what's great too is I'm pretty sure that's the order, right? Yeah, yeah. And then and of course the list of songs here yeah. is in is in uh, chronological order of the movie. Almost everything is there. <laughs> but it's always yes. the smaller ones, and I and it's okay. I mean, because look, look at that. Did you get two? You get because Dirt Clods covers the covers Hey Joe. They covered um, the Hendrix song because it probably was far more expensive <laughs> to, to put Jimmy's song in there. To get yeah, absolutely right. The irony would be right now is that would be on Spotify and you could get it, but sure. And I don't know about a band like Dirt Clods suffering from streaming because we all know that streaming music doesn't pay anybody anything. I mean, I think you can. I think it is available on Amazon though. Is it for the streaming side of thing or just for purchase? I think it's just for purchase. Oh, shit. I clicked on the link and it went nowhere. <laughs> you can buy their records because you know, I did the same thing. I clicked it and it took me. Oh, wait. I clicked it and it, it just took me to the Dirty Clouds. Like I could buy a shirt. <laughs> well, when I clicked on yeah. when I clicked on the Hey Joe one, it took me to Amazon Prime. And then and it's but it, and there's nothing else there. It's under digital music, it says Hey Joe, the Dirty Clouds. And I scrolled down and it has soil loosener and liquid lawn system. And then the third thing is liquid ass. Sure. It's called liquid, liquid ass. ass. Fantastic. Get your liquid spray. ass. That's the band that the Dirt Clods became later. Was, you know, they were known as liquid ass. Liquid ass. Sorry, Dirt Clods. I don't mean it. No, that's what the ass ponies came. Liquid ass dude, ponies. I, dude, I love the ass ponies, man. I saw that they were an A&M band, and uh, I used to do a lot of work for uh, this guy, Pat Magnarella. He had a lot of uh, bands there at A&M, um, Weezer and Sheryl Crow. He was a management type guy. But uh, yeah, man, somehow got involved. Did, but I saw the ass ponies a few times, and we'd go to AM rec AM records, and they'd just give you a box of like, hey, here's a bunch of new bands. Check them out. <laughs> that's how I got an ass. How I got in, that's how I learned about the ass ponies. They're good, though. Fun band live. Also, the ass ponies got the, probably the most play by a smaller indie band is when Warren gets arrested and they're doing the Shoal Shoplifter getting his Polaroid taken thing. One of the yep. three CDs he's holding is the Ass Ponies album, which I thought yeah. was kind of cool. This movie has, again, it's it, it's all about the music, but the forefront of it, as far as the the the, the cast goes, you got Anthropolia's in it. Now we you heard us love on Anthropolia in our Innocent Blood episode. Oh yeah, and. I kind of chuckled at my going, hey, I'm wondering something. Is this the Antilopalia from Innocent Blood? Does he figure out a way to go back in the sunlight again? Because this is New Jersey, right? Right. <laughs> so, who knows? Yeah. Maxwell Caulfield. Who yeah, man. <laughs> cool writer himself. Who plays Rex Manning. We haven't got to it yet. We'll eventually get to Grease 2, but. Say no more. One or more. He came to play. With Rex Manning, he went for it. He he understood. 
he was playing kind of a uh, David Cassidy kind of role. Almost, and I don't want to say Rick Springfield because Rick Springfield didn't hit until he was already an adult. But yeah, but playing off the, the whole part, Sean family. Cassidy, yeah, Sean or, Cassidy, uh, yeah, some one of them, one of, I'll go, one of those Cassidy's, yeah, yeah, one of those guys. Dude, when he showed the video, when he's his moves in there are just so uncomfortably rad. <laughs> oh yeah, man, dude, he's definitely having fun. I, I, him and. uh him and Debbie Mays are, are maybe my favorite things in this movie. Yeah. Um, they're, they're not in it a bunch, but when they are, they're, you know, they're bringing it, they're bringing comedy. They're bringing comedy to work. Right. We were talking about the length of the movie and poking around, do a little research, but man, this had a much longer cut. 40 minutes was cut from this movie, including four, what was it? We're saying like four major characters were cut from the movie entirely. Yeah. One of them was Tobey Maguire, I yeah, think. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, right. We are talking about this movie feels, not just feels, this is 100% Breakfast Club. Yeah, absolutely. With a bigger cast. Exactly. 10 years after the other one came out and Breakfast Club was, of course, the, we as we discussed before, the point in which this kind of thing was kind of the kind of thing where you had a movie directly tied to a soundtrack started, it really started with them. I mean, Purple Rain a little bit. But that was, come on, that was a musician starring in a movie that had music in it. <laughs> That's not right. I think it's sort of applicable, but not the way that Breakfast Club broke out and, and created a whole new dynamic. Yeah. John Hughes, I mean, I don't want to say he invented that, but, you know, John Hughes was the guy to really to like hammer that style home. And he was the first guy doing it on a regular basis. Pretty in Pink's the same way. You know, if you look at all those Hughes movies, but yeah, Breakfast Club was definitely, in my mind, the first movie right. I had to run out and buy the soundtrack after I saw the movie. Yeah, and it, and I think by the time the record companies and the movie studios figured that out, we were in the '90s, and that's why the '90s are so prevalent with this kind of one-two punch. And that was the thing too, man. They would hit, they they weren't hitting you with trailers back then; they were hitting you with songs, right? With music videos with footage in there before the movies ever came out. And that's how. God, what are music videos, Corey? I don't even know. What are they? Music they still videos. make <laughs> Shit, even MTV Classic doesn't, is all fucked up again. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to. But this movie um, also has Liv Tyler in it. Renee Zellweger, Robin Tooney. Ethan Embry. Ethan Embry, who. Maybe maybe his first movie? I mean, other than Dutch, right? He's, yeah, in Dutch. But I mean, I think his big breakthrough, uh, if I would have been, uh, Can't Hardly Wait. Is that the movie where uh, he sort of became household? The thing that you do. But, but the thing was, he was still being credited as Ethan Randall at this point. And he, had, he wasn't Ethan Embry in that sense yet. Right. So he didn't start, like White Squall and The Thing That You Do came out the next year in 96 and then Vegas Vacation in 97. And I think that that's when he switched his name to Ethan Embry. I think that's why a lot of people feel like he was new. But I remember, I don't remember him in White Squall so much. I can hardly remember that movie, but The Thing That You Do is obvious. He's, I think he's the bass player, right? That's his actual credit. He doesn't have a name. He's just the bass player. The bass player. Ethan's an awesome dude. Massive Dodgers fan. So we've always had the connection. I don't have my Twitter account anymore, but he and I became Twitter friends back in 2009 when Twitter first hit. So we've chatted here and there. And one of these days, maybe uh, might come on the show. Yeah, but Ken Hardaway probably is breakout role as because like, it was his first lead thing. But a lot of people know him as you know as Rusty Griswold from Vegas Vacation, Mister Papa Giorgio. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not a big fan of the vacation movies of the original because I'm not a huge Chevy Chase fan. But I love Ethan Embry in Vegas Vacation as Rusty. And by the way, he's very much, he the way he plays Mark in Empire Records is very much how he plays Rusty when he becomes Papa Giorgio in, in Vegas Vacation. Ethan's a funny dude. And, he, and to me, anytime he's on the screen, he's like going, it's, I'm, I'm, as we talked about, it's so weird to think about how young he was. He was, he, he seemed like the kid from Dutch growing up. He's like, oh my God. Well, he was, I think he was, he was probably 16 when they shot this movie. Um, Probably on there, yeah. He was yeah. born in 78, so yeah. I would say they probably shot in 94. I'd say he's around 16, probably. Yeah, yeah. I was into Freaky Links. I wish it would have, I mean, that, that's a show I thought should have got a little, you know, should have got a little bit more of a run or a push. But that was back when, was that a Fox show? Because I yeah. feel like Fox would, Fox had no patience with things. He didn't. <laughs> if they couldn't, if it couldn't draw you in for that, if it couldn't, if you put it in front of the X-Files and you didn't draw an audience, you got cut. <laughs> yeah, dude, I love Freaky Links. Love the shit out of it. Melody actually worked on the show for a little bit, doing on contacts and everything which kind of tells you what you need to know about the, about the show. Is it streaming anywhere? It's only that first season, right? I think there's only one season. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think it's uh that was a, uh, it's gotta be streaming somewhere, man. It has to be. Sorry. To me to yawn. <laughs> it's probably on Tubi where empire records can be seen for free. <laughs> Freaky links. Yeah. 14 episodes, not even a full season there. Yeah. That sounds like a, um, you, you think it was a mid season replacement, but it wasn't. It, it premiered in the fall. Yeah, why is it on Hulu or somewhere like that, man? I don't Maybe know. it is. It's a, no, I, I don't see it showing up anywhere. Yeah, I don't know. It's one of those forgotten sort of '90s, late '90s. Uh, Fox. There's a whole bunch of those we talked about before. These shows on Fox, at Harsh Realm, The Lone Gunman, Freaky Links, things like that that were cool, but just didn't get you know they didn't give they didn't give them much rope, as they say. Yeah, Family Guy made a joke about that when they when they got canceled and then came back. And they went down the whole list of saying, we're safe as long as these other shows they <laughs> don't get canceled. Right. And he went down the list of everything that got canceled between Family Guy getting canceled and then coming back, which was a lot. Yeah. It sucks because Freaky Links was a super fun show. It was a very sci-fi, horror, x file kind of show. But yeah, dude, this is long before Renee Zellweger. Not long before, but... <laughs> it's a year before Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire. And she... I mean, she blew up after this. Yeah. Like, boom. Rocket ship. I know you look at the cast of these eight or seven, maybe depending depending on how you look at it, get Lapalia is in there and then Caulfield and Debbie Mazur. Now we're talking about the eight. What's your feeling about what it did for those careers of those eight? I mean, Lapalia was already like he was already kind of doing things and I don't want to say he was slumming, but uh, LaPaglia, this is funny because I feel like this is right around the same year that he made So I Married an Axe Murderer because it feels like he literally yeah. walked off this set and put on, you know, walked onto that set. His career is about to dive into television right. at this point because I feel like he, I mean, he did, uh, he ended up doing this show that I love, Murder in the First, which was only a two season show, but he came on and replaced the lead and became the lead for the second season. But then he went into a long, I mean, he's in a bunch of sort of B movies up until he, and then he just kind of went straight TV and, I, and then he's made a ton of money on, um, I, I can't, what is the name of his TV show? I've, oh, without a trace. 
without a trace. Yeah. I mean, without a trace was on for like 10 years. So, I mean, Caulfield, I don't know, man. Caulfield is kind of an enigma to me. Uh, again, I know three movies that he's in really well. This one, The Boys Next Door with Charlie Sheen, directed by Penelope Spheris mm-hmm. and Grease 2. Yeah. I know he's in other things, but it's just like his career is like, I don't know if he's like a dude that just kind of like picks his projects or he's probably in a ton of stuff that I just haven't seen. It's funny, man, because Debbie Mazar, I think kind of, she did this money for nothing. Nobody in this movie became the biggest star as Renee Zellweger. No. And, and everybody already knew who Liv Tyler was. Yeah, she went on to... Well, we knew that she was in those Aerosmith videos because she was Steven's daughter. Right. Those had already come out at this point. Right. I actually know it wasn't too long after this that she started making the Lord of the Rings movies because they filmed that for so many fucking years. Right. Maybe two years after this, something like that, maybe. Yeah, I think something like probably. She probably got on a boat to <laughs> New Zealand and, you know. Because after this, I mean, what did she really do? Strangers. Duh, dude. She's in the thing that you do. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that. Armageddon. I feel like a lot of this cast, these young kids, right? Most of the young kids, they they either before or after they'd worked together, you know, kind of back and forth because it was a pool of people you pulled from. I think there's two, at least two, maybe three uh, actors in this that were all in Days of Confused, uh, only like maybe a year or so before this, um, you know, and then Embry. And it's funny because uh, you know who I, you know, who I find missing from this movie and I'm shocked is uh, Brecken Meyer. <laughs> He's too busy filming Clueless. There you go. Yeah. He was making another movie that was super tied to music, but is I love the fuck out of. Renee is like, I don't know if this was the movie that launched her into the next uh, stratosphere, but she definitely walked away as the, uh, you know what I didn't realize? I didn't realize that uh, La Paglia was Australian (laughs) until yesterday. Never knew that. I always just thought he was a New Yorker. Renee didn't do very much. She did the the in between this and Maguire, she did the the whole wide world with Vincent D'Onofrio. D'Onofrio, right? Yeah. Which is a very odd move, <laughs> right? From what she did and for from Empire Records to this. The first thing I ever saw her in was Love in a Forty Five, you know, and then the next thing I saw her in was Empire Records. Yeah, that whole wide world thing, man, that, that that's a weird little piece, right? Right. It's a weird movie, which you can watch for free on IMDb TV. Yeah, Renee, man, Renee, dude, like if you look at Renee Zellweger, her career literally just like went nowhere but up from here. Did you see her in the which did the Judy Garland movie from yeah. like last year or the year before? She's amazing. Yeah. I know a lot of people don't like her. It's weird. I don't know why she gets such a bad rap. I think she's always solid and everything. This is time now where everybody's so critical of how people look and everything. And, you know, she recently had some physical changes in her life. I don't know. I just think that women in general are so, are held to such a weird fucking standard, especially ones that are, that are, you know, where whose faces are seen constantly in movies or television or print or whatever. It's just fucking absurd and how much it affects the psyche, especially when you are somebody like, Renee, or you're just an actress or you, will you, I don't know. I just, I feel like she gets a bad rap for the wrong reasons and nothing to do with her performance and her capabilities. That was just everything to do with her appearance, which is fucking bullshit. But like you said, she's fucking solid and everything. I hell, I mean, I can even tolerate Chris O'Donnell in <laughs> the bachelor. Right. <laughs> so there, cause she's wonderful in it. So 
whatever. Yeah, well, dude, I mean, she's great in Appaloosa. She's great in Cinderella Man. I mean, she's Bridget Jones, Cold Mountain, Down with Love, which we had talked about before, you know, Chicago. She's been in, you know, she's been an A-list actress pretty much since the time she left this movie. Right. So the big winner here, I would say, Renee. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, somebody else who's had a long lasting career, but I've never really like understood. Him. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't, he's unrecognizable. I didn't, it took me a while to recognize Rory Cochran in this movie because it had been so long since I'd seen it as the same guy from Days and Confused. Except for he's got no hair now, right? Maybe it's the hair. I think that's what it is. The hair and the hat, right? Yeah, I think so, man. I, but I was like, why do I, I'm like, oh God, Days and Confused weird and you know and he shows up in a ton of stuff i mean you know he's he's a guy who's had a solid working career since then most recently i remember seeing him in uh white boy rick as an fbi agent (laughs) small role but nonetheless there he is i have i haven't seen it yet and i have a hard time digesting him playing an fbi agent unless he's undercover playing a guy just like (laughs) just like his character in this and just like Jason confused (laughs) I, but he's all beat Nikki in this, which is, I guess, but I guess it's, it's as if, as if, you know, the character from Days of Confused grew up and he's got a haircut, I guess. I don't well, know. Well, like you said, like, like you had said, not only does this movie borrow a little from the Breakfast Club, it, it kind of borrows him from, he, he's kind of like a shadowy, less likable version of Ferris Bueller. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's got that sort of like, you know, everybody wants to know what he thinks and and he's got this kind of weird sage wisdom, which isn't really sage wisdom. He's just talking. He's just talking. He's just sage shit. I've always felt that way about him all the way through the end, right? And then you get, and then he breaks the wall and looks at the camera. I'm like, are you dick? This is like. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And I don't know if that's Alan Moyle's choice or if that was Carol's choice in the script. Or if it's Rory's choice. Hey, what if I break the fourth wall? Yeah. Does that work for you? No? All right. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. And then. (laughs) I'm going to keep doing it. All right. We're going to cut 40 minutes to make this part work. Something. It makes me curious, though, if you think about it, if you put those 40 minutes back in, how much does Rory, is Rory's character a focus on the movie? I'm wondering if it totally changes that up. Yeah, because it seems like he's regulated. Like, I mean, honest to God, dude, I feel like every scene with Rory after the opening sequence in Atlantic City is Rory sitting on the couch in the lounge at Empire Records outside of, uh, I guess that's the break room. Right. Either that or it's one of the lofts from Friends. I'm not sure. Because it seemed huge. And there's like, I was like, man, I've worked in a lot. I worked in record stores. Our break room was never like that. That's what I wanted to ask you. Does Empire Records, the layout of it, does it remind you of, uh, did you ever go to uh, Record Trader? Oh, yeah. Back in the day. Or Aaron's Records. Yeah, yeah. Very similar in the layout uh, to those, you know, those record stores back, the sort of independent record stores of Los Angeles back before, uh, you know, they were all crushed by Amoeba and Virgin and things like that. Yeah. It's weird because Amoeba, somebody would say, oh, yeah, Amoeba, Empire Records. like No, I, I wouldn't say so. Amoeba, while it may look fairly independent, it's pretty corporate, man. Yeah. No independent record store can survive in that location that they were at before. None. Not no. one. No way. You, you want proof? Look at the Tower Records. That was a fucking classic down the street and it's gone. The whole, cor- they were as corporate as Tower Records was. That, that was the whole point though. Amoeba was always designed to look like an independent store. For a while, I thought it was. 
until I kind of looked at them again. And it kind of hit me as I was going back to the parking structure at, at the arc light, <laughs> put my records away and go watch a movie. I'm like, you know what? That's a big ass location for, for a store like that to survive. I mean, yeah, there's lots of people in there and everything, but really are you selling enough records? Is you got enough of a, of a markup of selling underused stuff to continue to be at that location? No. And, and artists, you know, music artists don't go and perform there because it's not heavily trafficked because they don't, I mean, it is. They're corporate. That's all there is to it. And it's not like Atomic Records. It's not like at the time Moby Disc for us. Nope. There's lots of smaller shops. Even though, even though there were chains, there were a handful of them. There weren't a lot of them. Penny Lane. The irony is a lot of them had to, you had to have three or four chains, just three or four locations, little small little chains like that to keep them, keep them all afloat. And those guys were barely, barely in the black if they were at all. That's why I say support your local record stores if you can. You talk about working in record stores, the vibe when music came on, the whole veto thing that that is very much a record store thing. I've, you know, you know, I had spent a year and a half working at music plus, and I know that all too well where people are kind of like fighting over music or who, but the whole Eminem thing of deciding who gets to choose music that morning, it was never that. Right. <laughs> it was never that democratic, unfortunately. No. <laughs> It was always like, who the hell was there? You had to ask, pretty please, can I can I play this, please, please? It's funny. I mean, they they capture the, uh, the, they definitely capture like the spirit. That's one thing that the movie does well, is they do capture the spirit of independent record and video stores yes. back in the day. Yeah. The bet with the whole dress policy, nobody can, you know, and then Renee comes out basically in her panties and a apron, yeah. dances around for us. I worked at Licorice Pizza and Licorice Pizza was, while they were corporate, they, it, you know, at heart, they were an indie record store. You know, you wear whatever you want. And this is also the eighties. There was no, there were no uniforms and stuff, but I remember after it got bought up by, I want to say Music Land Corp or Sam Goody. I don't remember what it, what it became. I, I, I didn't work there. I quit <laughs> because you had to wear like collared shirts and, you know, there was a similar sort of vibe. Like, yeah, you know, now you can't come in with a sleeveless concert shirt and da, 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 you know, it got very like collared polo shirts and name tags. And so they do capture that vibe really well in this movie. Like we said about the breakfast club, you do get a couple dance sequences in this movie, which yeah. come out of nowhere. They just kind of come out of left field, which feel very John Hughesy. Yeah. This movie does borrow a lot from, uh, from that school for sure. I feel like I need to get a hold of Carol's script. I want to know what those other 40 minutes are. Cause I got a feeling there might be, I guess I didn't recognize it as much in 95 as I do now, but, but the, I think maybe because I'm, you know, I've written so much more and I've consumed so much more that the storytelling is disjointed. You get just enough. And that's the thing too. We talked about the, the breakfast club comparison. I'll make it again. There's too many characters in this to give the character development that the characters in yeah. breakfast club have. Exactly. You just get it long enough to go, Oh, Robin Tooney's got this uh, personal at home problem. She feels disowned by her family. She, you know, she doesn't even know who her mom is. So she's this angsty, I tried to kill myself or I'm pretending I tried to kill myself for the sake of attention. Sure. And then Liv Tyler clearly is the Molly Ringwall. Of the the Molly Ringwall. Yeah, it's Claire. Yeah, she's totally Claire. Overachieving, uh, you know, high school student. Named Corey. So here I am in the movie theater. I guess I am one of those one of those people that put in the 150k opening weekend because the soundtrack just rocks. 
And then you see her name's Corey, and I'm like, oh, shit. I wonder if they spell it the same way. <laughs> you get to the end of the credits, and that's, they spell the same name, same way as mine, which is weird. You, you see plenty of girls named Corey, but they're really spelled the same way. It's Because C-O-R-E-Y is kind of a, I don't want to say a masculine way of spelling it. Because, I mean, Corey English spells her name with, with, an, with an I, so those aspects of it that maybe it kind of lends itself to maybe hurt the movie a little bit of not being able to expand on those characters. But dude, 40 minutes on the floor, man, you kind of think there's more development there because I, I felt like it was, they, there was one point they said, all right, I want to go ahead and make all of my, my references to John Hughes and how much I love John Hughes movies, especially breakfast club. I'll throw some Ferris Bueller in there for good measure. Right. And some 16 candles and some 16 candles. Exactly. Yeah, because uh, Embry's very Farmer Ted-ish. Very kinda. much so. And by the way, the kid Warren, dude, total Farmer Ted. Totally, dude. I mean, even his hair. No, no, he, totally. He, yes. And he looks just like the kid that goofs on the whole Farmer Ted character in Not Another Team movie. In Not Another Team uh, Dude, I was going to add, I, you know, I was going to look it up and I it's totally why, forgot because I wanted to see if it was him. It's why, <laughs> it's why I went to IMDb to see what else that guy had done. I I would bet money he was related to that kid. Nope, they're not. It's not, a, not the same guy and there's no relative. <laughs> That's part of it. You know, we talked before, is this, you know, we always talk about is this, is it better remember to remember better? Um, the soundtrack is kids kick asses ever. I'll just say that about it. The movie, it definitely suffers from the edits. You know, I, I have a different view of it at 26 than I, you know, when I was 26 as opposed to me being 51 now. It definitely has a different vibe for me. But yeah, the first 15 minutes of it though, man, it, it starts off so strong. And, and it's funny, I, I hadn't seen it in a while, but I'd seen it enough to, it was, so it was weird for me to forget that Rory's opening wasn't a dream. For some reason, I kept thinking it was a dream. And then, you know, like he wakes up on the motorcycle, but the, the waking up in the motorcycle was just part of the movie. It wasn't, it wasn't I'm going to throw this at you. Is Rory dead? <laughs> We're not doing this. Sorry, I was kidding. We're not um, doing this. Yeah. <laughs> Our April Fool's shit was last week, damn it. Right. Uh, okay. Sorry, man. All right. One thing that Empire Records does well is it says, this is 1995. I mean, it should be just be called that. This is 1995. Yeah, man. I mean, it's funny because it, it, there's a handful of movies, I guess I should say, that literally take me back to a time and a place. And that is what this movie did for me yes. more than anything else. It took me right back to the summer of 1995. I was still kind of half-assed into the art department. I was still trying to play music. I was auditioning. I worked at a place where I was around a lot of these bands. Like I said, we had rehearsal spaces, at, you know, and I would pop in and out and I'd go out at night and I'd see all these bands. And this movie took me right back there. So right. Shannon, I want to thank you for that because uh, I don't know that I would have, I don't know that I would have picked this movie to watch again. Cause I, I didn't, other, like I said, I super love the soundtrack, super familiar with the soundtrack. I had never seen, hadn't seen the movie since 1995. And this movie, like, was a little like a time machine, and it took me right back there. So thank you for that. Again, like I mentioned, if anything, it makes me, I want to I want to know more about what was cut. So the things that we both enjoy about the movie from, that aren't, that aren't songs, that aren't soundtrack related, the stuff that really worked for us, I want to, I kind of think there's more of that. 
on, in the script. Like, I think there's, I mean, gosh, dude, 40 minutes, man. That's a third of, that's a, that's a long script. Let's just go ahead and say that. Yeah. But they shot it, dude. They shot, they shot all this stuff. Why dump it? Why not put it out there so for people to see, at least put it on, on the DVD. Um, but yeah, I agree with you 100%. Remind me what it was like to work in a record store. Cause Shannon, you know, she spent a lot of years there was working at Tower Records. So she knows all too well that same feeling that we're talking about of working at a record store and that vibe and that fun aspect. And even though Tower Records was technically a corporate a corporation, they had a, a an indie sensibility about them. There's a reason why everybody would flock to to the Sunset Tower Records because if you need it, they had it. And and they sold a lot of records, but they were always man. Everybody there was so fucking great, and they always want to talk about music. And that's what independent record stores are. They're not snotty fuckers like they are in high fidelity, <laughs> which right? is an, well, yeah, which is another great, another great, yes, record. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you, Shan. Yes, thank you very much. This was this was again to be reminded of what it was like to work in a record store again, and just reminded what an amazing thing. Because look, dude, I can't tell you the last time I talked about the ass ponies. <laughs> no, dude, the last time I talked about the ass ponies was when I was in Cincinnati because we were at this bar having a burger and a beer, and right up on the wall was an ass ponies. The ass ponies had played there. <laughs> That's so great because they're from Cincinnati. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they're they're like a Cincinnati band. Oh, it's great. There's anything else? They all tied together so neatly. Put a bow on that shit. Even though this movie is full of fifty-two amazing, amazing needle drops. Yeah, totally. All fifty-two were perfect. Right? No, they're fucking fantastic. And I want to say, you know, I'm going to throw this out there too. You hear the two Cranberries songs that are in there, and I don't know how you feel about the band, the Cranberries. But what I just discovered was I didn't realize that the Cranberries uh, were had been working on an album when Dolores passed away, and they had a bunch of demo uh, vocal tracks recorded. And they actually finished the album. It came out in 2019, and I won a Grammy. But I just recently discovered it. So if you really want to go back to 1995, you can go back to 2019's. Cranberry's release. This is the end. Is it this is the end? No, did they really fucking call it that? In the end. Oh my God. Uh, so you just got to go back to 2019's uh, In the End, which is the final album from the Cranberries. Uh, the band is not going to go on. They're not going to get a new singer. Hearing Dolores in her purest form in 1995 in this film, just playing over while things are happening in the movie, it's quite a time capsule piece. It's pretty amazing. So there you go. Cool. And, you know, another thing I want to point out, too, that Empire Records cover, the the, the one sheet for the, uh, for the you know, one sheet, and, you know, it's also going to be used for the album cover. Dude, it's so, like, it's, it's like, that's probably, people can look at that right away and know what it is. And you don't need to see it say Empire Records. You can just look at that thing and go, I know what that is. I know what that movie is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's go ahead. <laughs> Rory's not looking straight ahead. Everybody else is. Even the dog. Ferris. Ferris. They're all dead. Empire Records is heaven. Yep. And Rory is stuck in purgatory. That's the office. <laughs> Can I leave the couch? That's it. Purgatory's on the couch. Yeah. Are we saying that Joe is God? No. What are we saying about Joe? Which he's he's one of the angels then. Joe is a you know Saint Peter sitting there at the gate. That makes sense. Can I leave the couch? Well, you know, because yeah, because he because he he's the one that hires and fires, right? That's right. Anyway, (laughs) there you go. Anyway, Empire Records. Empire Records.
So if you want to follow us on Letterboxd, I'm at Corey underscore Culp. Or if you want to support the show on Patreon, thank you, Patreon supporters, because every single episode this month, Sans last week's Rise of the Guardians, is chosen by Patreon listeners. By you. If you want to join them, that's patreon.com slash KITG podcast. If you'd like to follow me, you can follow me at Letterboxd under Tom Cody. That's Tom Cody at Empire Records. I mean, Letterboxd. Curtis.